healthy conversations. That's certainly a theme of the Corey Truax Show. We're going to do that today with my often ideological opposite. His name is Nathan McDowell. That will take up the whole hour on this week's Corey Truax Show. of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for listening. Amongst many other things, I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets in Greenville at 1030 on Sunday mornings. You're invited. And from time to time, something I like to invite you into is good conversation. And before he goes off, as you're about to hear, to some far-flung things, I thought it'd be good to have Nathan McDowell back on the show. I believe this is number three or four, Nathan. I think it's four. I think it's the fourth time. We have good, fun discussions together because we don't think the same about a lot of things, and that actually makes it fun. It's, I also like to do it to model for you what it's like to talk to someone you disagree with, and it be nice, and it be kind. It doesn't have to be cantankerous. So, Nathan, let's just start here on a, on a personal note. Just tell us about what's been going on with you and what's coming up next. So, yeah, I've been teaching uh, high school math for about a year. Um, was a little bit of a pivot in my original plan, but it's been it's been good. Um, definitely get some teaching experience, but my long-term plan is I'm getting my PhD at University of Illinois at Chicago, and I want to be a social psych professor. It's, good. Uh, it's going to be a, a fun ride in Chicago. I do love that town. It's also, uh, it is good that you got to serve your, and that your, your actual high school. You went to Boiling Springs. My little brother did, yeah. Okay. So you, yeah, you went to some other place up there. Uh, but you got to serve your community before you ran off somewhere else. It's a good thing to go do. I bet you've got incredible. I bet there's some stories about Definitely. teaching high school <laughs> in a COVID year. Uh, man, uh, we should talk about that off air. All right. <laughs> speaking of COVID, that's actually when we got back in touch. It was one of the first things that got brought up to maybe discuss. And I just want to give you the floor. I, it shouldn't have been ideological, but COVID response became deeply ideological, even quite political throughout 2020. Um, and so I just want to get your overview, and we'll see where we differ. What do you think about COVID-19 and the response? Yeah, I guess I'll kind of give my opinions on the beginning and the end. So one of the things I'll give Trump credit for is at the beginning, he did shut down travel from China. And a lot of people called that racist. And then looking back on it, it was like, well, we probably should have done that. Maybe should have done it even earlier. Um, Now, I think we're in a situation where, uh, at least from what I've heard, the experts are saying we're going to be stuck with COVID for a very long time. And I think that's in large part due to the fact that we didn't shut down enough and didn't shut down consistently. And we've let the virus mutate to a point where it's going to be like a slightly worse seasonal flu that we probably have to get vaccinated for every so often. Yeah. On the, the reality of being with it forever, I made that assumption from the beginning. A new virus exists. So now we do risk mitigation. Everybody just learn it, know it, and we, we, go, we go on with life now with a new risk. Not, I feel like for some folks, they imbued the virus with a level of risk that, was, that didn't match the facts. It was a, like it was this terrifying thing. I, I remember early on, it just sounded like folks talking, like getting COVID-19 was the biggest tragedy that's ever happened to anybody. Like, I, I don't know if you know, I had COVID back in July. I did not know that. Yeah, back in July of 2020. It was miserable, and then it got better, as did almost everybody that, that got it, uh, that interacted with it. Uh, and so as we start closing, closing down that COVID chapter, th- I look back on the response. I think you and I actually do have a big difference. I thought we deeply overreacted, but I, I look back on it now. During the, during the time, what I said to everybody, oh, I'll say it this way. 
people were emailing me asking me for my opinion about a public health thing. It's like, why are you asking me? I work at higher ed. I do ministry. I host a show. What do I know? And so I had a lot of, a lot of patience to defer to those who are having to make decisions that I had no idea what to do in. Now looking back on it, I think, yeah, we overreacted. I mean, we, we wrecked an economy, uh, a world economy for a year, but I can't, again, I can't blame somebody. So when you, in anything that you just heard, did anything pop to uh, disagree with? Yeah, I think one of the things that was difficult about that is at the beginning, we just didn't know what was going on with the virus. And so I definitely think we can say in hindsight that we overreacted, but I think that given the information that we had, the early shutdown was probably still the best response. We didn't know the mutation rate, we didn't know the infection rate and all that stuff. So I think at least at the beginning, we definitely should have had an intense response. At the, at the time when we started, I was, I was just deferring to those having to make decisions because I know none of them were easy. Right, and then uh, and then we move on. So, okay, we we're not that different on COVID. What was there any particular uh, time over the last year where you saw a conservative response or something that you would associate with a conservative response, like somebody like me that you thought that's madness, anything like that? Yeah, I think the I think the economic trade-off and the devs are are difficult because they're so entangled with one another. And so, I mean, I'm personally was for a mask mandate. Um, I would have been for, I think, um, easing into opening up more and maybe having uh, restaurants and businesses operate at half capacity for longer and things of that nature. So maybe there's some, some daylight between us there. Um, but yeah, I think it, I, I recognize that it's tough because, you know, if you're forcing people to stay in their homes, you're forcing people to not work, that's going to have some, some um, unfortunate economic effects that can also lead to people dying in some extreme cases but then on the other hand if we let COVID run rampant and people are getting sick all the time and dying that's also going to have economic impacts of people not being in the workforce because they're immobilized by illness and I couldn't find and haven't done a deep dive enough to really crunch the numbers and say you know how all that pans out but I do think that less people would have died and that we would be better off in the long run if we had uh if we had cracked down more sure yeah, that's I, I we neither one of us have the data to make a decision one way or the other. The the cost benefit analysis, I guess is what I would what I what I would say here. As when I when I look back on it, I feel like I'm cheating because I'm looking back, right? In the moment, you don't actually know fully the risk you're putting people at. Looking back on on it, the the death risk is so low that I I I was let me say it this way. Oh, I figured out the way to say it. The Florida, Georgia type response is exactly, I think, how I would have handled it. Mm. Those, those states. I believe they shut down for about eight or nine weeks. That would have been March, like back half of March, all of April, maybe all of May, something like that. And then basically all got back to life, normal life. The, the response from some other states I thought was overkill. And maybe that's a, a brilliant part of America. Let's not have a federal response. You guys... You guys do your thing. We're going to do our thing. We're going to have our values. And we don't have to have someone uh, from the top telling us all what to do. Um, okay, I, th- I, I can about to move us on to one more unless you have any final COVID thoughts. Yeah, I guess my one thing that I completely disagree with conservatives on that really angered me a lot would be, would be masks. Um, it reminds me of the abortion debate in the sense that, you know, there's a common sense solution that I think we can all agree to, which is just 
better sex education and, and, and better accessibility to birth control. You know, that's going to reduce abortions no matter what. And when people want to have kids and regardless of what your stance on it is, let's work on that together. For me, masks are a clear example of that. They don't keep you from opening up the economy at all and they keep people safe. And I think part of what made opening up the economy in a safe way difficult is it became this political stance for a lot of conservatives about freedom to, to not wear a mask. And I think that was probably the most frustrating thing for me. Yeah. I'll, I'll toss that in on, on both sides in some ways. M masking should not have been a partisan thing. It became a signal to, you, you're into social psychology, it became a signaling mechanism. Those who refused were giving a signal. I'm not part of these people. These people are, are of this ideological bent. I want to signal that I'm not part of them. And for some folks on the left, it just became a signal. It became the yarmulke for the Jew. It became the, uh, the cross on your necklace for the Christian. It, w it was a signal, I'm doing this to show. Heck, David Hogg, the, I would just say, psychopath kid from Florida who was part of the, Stone uh, the shooting down in Florida a few years ago. He tweeted, I, I'm, I'm double-vaxxed, ready to take off my mask, but I don't want to so anyone doesn't think I'm a conservative. Like, all right, so masks for you weren't scientific either. They were a signaling mechanism. Uh, and so uh, I don't think we, you and I disagree on the wisdom of masking, but I think they became signals for left and right that for a lot of people, and I'm not saying everybody, that was unhealthy. So, uh, okay, that's, that's, I think that's good on masking. I'm, I'm so done with COVID. <laughs> I cannot tell you how finished with COVID I am. Yeah. Are you there too? I, I'm kind of in a similar position. For uh, sure. I'm just, <laughs> I am grateful that it's coming to an end. Here's another big one from last year that you sent me that you wanted to talk, to talk about. I will admit... I think we're going to be generally aligned, and in that case, probably boring. So if we're super aligned, we'll move on. Uh, but you talked, you mentioned election uncertainty. So are you talking about people uncertain that the outcome of the November election is the right one? Yeah, I think that, and I think you know Trump's response leading up to the election, and how we handled mail-in voting, and if we can trust that as a system or not, and yeah, all those, all those ideas. Which of those do you want to start on? Um, maybe, maybe the lead up would be a good place to start. Okay. Your, your take, what was, uh, what, the lead up to the vote? Yeah. So my main take would be that we want people to vote. I mean, I think that, you know, the better, um, the better job we can do of capturing people's political opinions. I mean, that's the foundation of, of democracy. And so I think that in a COVID era, um, a lot of people weren't going to feel safe coming to the ballot box. And I think mail-in voting played an integral role of that. And if I think if there were legitimate safety concerns by conservatives, what should have happened is, well, let's take increased measures to make mail-in voting safe and um, make sure that fraud is not going to happen and we minimize that as much as possible. Instead, what we saw is massive cuts to the post office, um, getting rid of a ton of machines that would have been able to take in those ballots and count them effectively, and it almost looked like the Trump administration was trying to set up the system to fail so that if he, had a, so that if he lost, he would have a fail-safe, that he could blame the election system that I think he contributed to undermining somewhat before it happened. Yeah, so... The f post office matters um, for that, that process. The federal government has no control over drop boxes. The federal government has no control over what states do in terms of, uh, if anyone heard that, that was my phone. Sorry <laughs> about that. Uh, the, the federal government has no control over those, some, some of those things. States can do that. Um, his behavior, I'm so done with him too, by the way. I'm so yeah. done with him. <laughs> I, I don't ever want to talk about him ever again, really. Uh, yeah, his behavior was, I'll just say, yeah, I think we'll just acquiesce to that. His behavior was harmful in the lead up to 
trusting the system. So in terms of behavior up to the lead up, I've, I have no problem with anything you said there about him. I don't think it's a, I don't think you can blame the federal government for changing drop boxes or other parts of mail-in voting. So here's what I'll do. I'm running, running up against the first break. So we just got into a new thing, election uncertainty. We're going to take a first quick break. We'll come back. We'll deal with that. Also today, we're going to deal with the Capitol riots. We got, we're going to have some racial justice talk as well. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show. We're going to spend the entire hour with Nathan McDowell, soon headed off to the University of Illinois at Chicago. That's a conservative and a, and a left of center. Can I just say left of center? Yeah. <laughs> Having a healthy conversation. We'll model more of that for you and have some fun when you return for the rest of the Corey Act show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. I hope that you will. You can also support the show at anchor.fm. We are joined today by four-time now guest of the show. On the show more than anyone else, his name is Nathan McDowell. Welcome back. Great to be here. We are talking things that we disagree on from the last year or so. We're checking back in, and we're talking now on election uncertainty. Before the break, you mentioned mail-in voting is one of the one of the issues of the last year i am not a i'm not a fan of mail-in voting generally but specifically to the covid world states that had never really done it had to spin up a process that didn't exist and that that's hard for a, a private company to do a private corporation struggles with doing a brand new thing and doing it well Governments are notoriously bad at everything. And so then we give them this new intricate thing to try. And so, yes, uh, the behavior of the former president of the United States was troublesome. I think there's also some healthy skepticism that a government could just create a process and it's going to be great from the beginning. Thoughts on that? I definitely agree with that. I think one of the things that comes up a lot with mail-in voting is fraud and you have to take into account you know single instances of fraud versus systematic voter fraud and single instances of fraud just individuals committing voter fraud definitely happens but it tends to balance out right because democrats are pretty much just as likely to commit voter fraud as republicans are and so if you know imagine them being equally uh distributed it doesn't end up becoming a big issue for democracy what becomes an issue for democracy is systematic instances of voter fraud which which I don't think is what we saw. Um, I'm reassured by the fact that Trump's own Homeland Security Department said it was the most secure election in American history. A lot of federal judges, including ones that he appointed, didn't seem to think that his cases have merit. So I think there's a lot of good indications that this was a safe election. But yeah, I definitely think that building an infrastructure from scratch from some states was uh, would be difficult for sure. For people to, to trust. But to be clear, we have we had a fear a fair free election. The the skepticism of that, I tried even on my own show to my own audience to say that out loud a bunch after the election. One of the awesome things about our elections is that they're not run by the federal government. It's that local governments get to run them. And so local secretaries of state and local election officials get to run all these little precincts. The feds the fe- feds don't need that kind of power. Consider consider the danger of giving the federal government power over the elections like that when someone like that's in charge. Uh, and so I think we could, even when you mentioned uh, voter fraud, that it exists. Yeah, barely. Like, it's basically, not only, not only do they cancel each other out, it doesn't really happen. 
Voter fraud is barely a thing. It's a very small thing in America. We can trust our systems. Our systems are great when it comes to, to voting. There's only one of the states that I, I'm not skeptical of their outcome. I think what they did was illegal. I think what Pennsylvania did was illegal. They don't have a mail-in system. Their constitution says if any major change happens in voting, the state legislature has to do it. And they just decided, well, it's COVID, so the rules, the rules don't count anymore. We're, we're declaring emergency. We're just giving it to the Secretary of State. Well, your Constitution says you can't do that. Uh, there, that was a, one of my bigger problems was not trusting the vote. It was that we just decided because of COVID, you can break the law. You can break your Constitution because COVID happened. Well, no, you can't. Get back in there. I don't care if you have to do it through Zoom. I don't, but the legislature must change voting. That where that happened in other places like Arizona and where that happened in other places, I'm thinking of Michigan, technically, it's not in their constitution. There is like emergency powers. But Pennsylvania straight up says you can't, no one can change voting laws except the state legislature. So I trusted the outcome. I, enc I encourage everybody to trust the outcome so we can all move on with our lives. And then, uh, but, but I think what Pennsylvania did was illegal. But that, that's going to move us into the Capitol riots. But any final thoughts on the election uncertainty? No, I think what you said is fair. The, good. All right. So that led us to one of the ugliest things that has happened since we could capture images on camera. We've had still images, I think, since the 1840s, 1850s, something like that. We've had moving images available to us, not, I mean, last 70 or 80 years. Since we've been able to capture images, what happened at the U.S. Capitol is one of the ugliest things we've ever seen. Uh, before I start giving you my take, I, I, I took the lead of the last one. You give me your take. Uh, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about it. What's on your mind regarding the Capitol riots? Yeah, so we probably agree on much of the substance of what happened, and obviously that it was not, not good. It was a very um, destructive and unfortunate moment for our country. Maybe we disagree on the extent to which Trump is to blame for it. Um, I think he and other Republican leaders are pretty heavily to blame for it. In some ways, I have a lot of sympathy for the Capitol rioters, because after it happened, I was thinking, you know, if you truly believe that the election was stolen, and not only stolen, but stolen by a bunch of um, evil socialists who want to ruin our country, I don't know how you could view what the Capitol rioters did as anything but a, a, an act of heroism. Now, I, there are a lot of problems, I think, with how people come to those beliefs, but I can at least recognize if I believe those things, I think it's a perfectly logical and even noble course of action to take. So I lay that at the feet of Republican leaders who I think purposefully sowed uncertainty in the result, taking the lead from Donald Trump. Interesting. So I am a big believer in personal responsibility. It's one of my core fundamental beliefs. And so while I can hold someone accountable for the things they say, I cannot hold someone accountable for doing something. So I cannot hold person A accountable for the actions of person B. So person B believes a crazy thing. That person's responsible for their own madness. And so every person that did something unlawful on the day of the, I call them the QAnon, or the QAnon riots, because it mostly was QAnon people who went inside, I said at the time, find every one of them, arrest them, put them before a jury of their peers, and charge them with the most severe thing you're allowed to charge them with, and give them the harshest punishment you possibly can. But when I look at, I don't care about Donald Trump, I couldn't care less about the guy, I'm done with him, but even Republican leaders, whatever, I can hold them responsible if they were irresponsible in their words, but I will not hold them responsible for the actions of other people. Are you comfortable holding them responsible for the actions of other people? 
No, I mean, not in the sense that I think they should receive any sort of legal penalty that, you know, should definitely fall on the capital riders. Um, so I'm definitely in agreement with you. I think I just mean that um, they played a role in it and in, and in sowing those seeds of doubt and uncertainty and, and rage in people. And, um, yeah, that's all I meant. <laughs> I'm going to challenge you on one of these just because you might, yeah. you might think this. They were a big deal. I mean, I called them – I just called them the ugliest thing, one of the ugliest things we've ever seen. I also think those on the, I think some folks on the left really overplayed their significance. Calling it a coup. Calling it an insurrection. I wanted to say to many folks on the left, calm down. Less than, about 200 people, some of them dressed like goats, broke into the Capitol. They were cleared out in four hours. It wasn't a national crisis. Crises don't get solved in four hours. You know something is a crisis when it goes on and on and on. You know that in your own life. Crises aren't fast things. We got them out. A Republican Senate and a Republican vice president took the floor, certified the result. We all moved on with our lives. So your reaction to my take that the folks on the left really overplayed its significance. Yeah. I mean, I try to not get fixated on what we label something as. I try to get fixated on what happened. And so I definitely... I don't know if I think that calling it a coup is necessarily unfair, but I think if calling it a coup is pulling the weight of hyping people up, then then you're approaching it uh, inappropriately. You know, I think we should focus on here's what the people did, um, here were their actions where they went in the wrong way, and whatever we label that as, that shouldn't be what's motivating our um, our concern. Yeah. Admittedly, I'm deeply invested in labels. Words mean things to me. They mean, mean a lot. And so when I hear coup or insurrection, I want to just say back, that's not what that word means. Go look it up. I've, I know what those words are. You, we, we, sh- we should label things properly so as to not cause emotional reactions in people that rile them up. But I, I, get what you're, I get where you're coming from. Just because I'm attached to words doesn't mean I'm right. It just means I'm attached to words and their definitions. Um, okay, so I think that's, I think that's uh, capital riots. Anything else you have on that? All right, so the other event of last year, this is where we might have some divergence, I don't know. We had a summer of, we call those riots, or eh, 99% of it was protests. 1% ends up getting really ugly, burning stuff down, uh, regarding racial justice issues that were, was born out of the Memorial Day, uh, now, now uh, legally adjudicated murder, is what we can call it, of George Floyd, so you, you reflect on it first. I'll respond to your reflection of the last year of what took place regarding racial justice, and we'll dive in from there. I think a lot of really interesting things happened. One thing is that I feel like the weight and momentum of the country was much more behind racial justice than I had ever seen it before. And maybe that's because the George Floyd incident was just so barbaric and such a clear act of cruelty. There's, there's really no alternative explanation we can point to of the police officer being scared or that being necessary or, you know, holding him down and choking him for almost 10 minutes is just, you know, obviously unjustified in any circumstances. So I think that was a very interesting um, byproduct of it. I think one of the things that um, we could definitely talk about is defunding the police and how that happened in the aftermath and what, uh, what your opinion on that is. Let's, um, Let's go there. Um, I, I like when good ideas are well represented. And when people have bad ideas and 
uh, if WLFJ, if you need to strike this word, just pop it out uh, if you don't mind. When people suck at presenting their ideas, I get angry at them or I feel bad for them. And so where someone was saying, hey, you know, we might have 50 officers in this precinct. Wouldn't it be good if we had 45 officers and there were like three social workers and two mental health, uh, two mental health people? Or we, we switch up that ratio? I look at that and go, hey, that's a good idea. I mean, I see the, uh, that case up in Buffalo of a guy who had gone absolutely mad. He'd gone and he actually had mental health problems. They put a bag on him. Um, he was spitting on them, said he had COVID. You know, that, that guy who died. Man, that guy did not need a cop that night, man. He, needs, he needed something else. What I just said is not, defund the police. Like, what an insane thing to say. And so here I sit with some people. I'm looking at them going, I want you to get what you want. You want there to be fewer officers and more mental health people, more social workers, but the words you're saying don't mean that. The words you're saying mean stop the police from being funded. So would you market your idea better, please? All right, so that's my two thoughts. Is It's a good idea. I understand where they're coming from, but boy, they were bad at, at trying to present it. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think I completely agree with that. And one of my key um, qualms with it was I think we're too fixated on the dollar amount. I mean, I, I get the idea of we're divesting resources to to social workers, to different types of people in the community who can handle situations without violence. I think that's a fantastic idea. I think there's a lot to be said and, you know, some so social psychological literature on, you know, just bringing a gun into a situation just drastically increases the likelihood of violence and creating a an environment of violence that's more likely to escalate. Um, but also, I think that police potentially need, you know, more education, more training, more screening. Well, a lot of the complaints are that we need higher quality police officers. And all that stuff potentially takes more money. And so I think this weird fixation on like, yeah, we need less money going to the police was not the right way to look at it. We should definitely divert some of the resources, but also some of the solutions might require more money and end up netting that we fund the police more than we did previously. Unifying to people, like you and I are so different. But if someone came and said, I'd like to reimagine policing, you and I would both respond to that very favorably. If Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was in the room and Mike Pence was in the room and we said, we want to reimagine policing, I don't think either one of them bristle at it. It's the, when you say outlandish, insane things like defund the police, it causes a problem. Like you and I are basically on the same page here. It's just the, the language talks past each other. I mean, it's, you called it diverting of resources. What an accurate thing to say, right? And on, on policing generally, I've I made some listeners mad. Yeah, we have a massive policing problem. They're not a lot of them are unqualified. These are not the people who should be given guns and badges. The some of the stats that come out during that time about the how, the the requirement of how many hours you spend in the academy in some states, a police academy versus how many hours it takes to do some other menial job. I shouldn't say menial. There's no such thing as a menial job. Um, some particular work, like uh, I can't remember if it was nails or hair or something. Like there are some states you got to train longer to, to do that, to be a, an officer. Of course, that's crazy. And that actually takes more, takes more resources, not fewer, to have better police. So I don't even think we need fewer police. We need better police. And that's, the, that's probably going to take, take some resources. So I, Thinking through this, I now have a, que a question for, for you. You're now representing the totality of leftism. I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> you can't have that pressure on you. When you hear a, a, a policing problem, you and I agree, we have a policing problem. Do you think we have a 
a a racist police problem, or do we have, or do we have just an unqualified police problem? Yeah, I think it's I think it's both. I'm comfortable saying both, and I, but I'll also say this is a question that I've struggled with. So if you look at if you look at the data, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence showing that um, a unarmed black person is a lot more likely to get shot than an unarmed white person. And we've replicated that, you know, in field studies, but also just in lab experiments where we've kind of taken out all the variables and just seen, you know, had done training simulations. And if um, they're training um, and the simulation has a black person come towards them, they're a lot, uh, or I don't know a lot. I don't know what the exact percentage is, but I know they were more likely to get shot. Um, I'm comfortable saying that we do have a racist policing problem. I also think it's challenging, not in the George Floyd case, but in certain cases to know when that is. So if we see a gap, and let's say that we know that we've been able to perfectly control for everything, and it's a perfect study, and um, black people are getting shot twice as much as white people still. Well, we can still assume then that maybe half of those weren't motivated by racism at all. And then the question is, which half? And so what I think is difficult is when we're talking about these situations, we know on aggregate that there's some racist issues involved in that, but it's hard to pinpoint in some specific cases, you know, because we just see that we see the, the behaviors, but it's hard to know what's internally going on in someone's head. I appreciate your saying that because that's, that's been part of, um, I think, talking past each other problem on left and right is for some folks on the left, Everything is racist. Every, every police interaction with a non-white person is deeply motivated by race. That the system and the structure can be racist, not just the person. Could, that we don't even talk about, it's one of the issues, one of the things I think conservatism does well is not thinking about people as groups. That there are only individuals. There's not the police. There's a police officer. There's, each of them are individuals, not all the same, and they have different motivations. And so I... I, I struggle with calls, calling the police racist because they're individuals, and some of them probably are. Most of them probably aren't. We've largely defeated individual r- racism in the hearts of people. And you might disagree with that, but I think lar- largely we, we have, especially in the United States, we're a, a real melting pot. So the I had a thought that was firing, a synapse that was firing I wanted to get to on this. Oh, yeah, here's my theory on why there is racial inequity in policing. That We see it, it's obvious. I think it has to do with poverty. When we look at the relationship between the impoverished person and the, pol- the police interaction they have, you actually see a, 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 lot of, uh, a lot of congruity across racial groups. The crime problems in Appalachia are similar to the problems in inner cities. That's white and black people. And a lot of the police interaction and how much police interaction you have is similar. The issue we have is generational poverty because of of old systems we used to have that we don't have anymore like not uh not lending to black families to buy homes or uh zoning that require required you to live in places that you, you you didn't get the same education or something and so generational poverty has led to where we sit now that we have a disproportionate amount of our impoverished people are black people and being in poverty is the thing that shows you're going to interact with police more a, have you heard that theory? And B, have you any response to it? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a huge component of it, for sure. I think that there have also been some some studies that have controlled for that, and the effect goes down. But there's still there's still um, some racist elements involved. So I'm not willing to take that out of the equation completely. And I guess um, with what you said about conservatives being good at viewing people as individuals. Um, 
I, I also think we can say that liberals are, are good at viewing people in groups and then bad at viewing people as individuals. And I think there's some strengths of both. And in my mind, what we should be able to do is recognize a systemic problem. And, and for me, I'm comfortable saying the police is a systemically racist institution in some ways. Um, but also recognizing that these are, you know, these are stats and these are percentages. That doesn't mean that you can point to every single individual in the police force or this this a cab stuff of like all cops are bad. You know, I think that was where the being bad in individuals yeah. comes. I mean, that's just that's just clearly ridiculous. And yeah. yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. I have one more question on this, and I'm going to let you stew on it. So, and because there's a break coming up anyway, and I have a teaser for you. <laughs> Recently. Both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris said the words, we are not a racist country. That was the words that came out of their mouth. So I'm going to ask Nathan McDowell when we come back, are, are we a racist country? We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Welcome back into the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. We are joined now for the fourth time on the show, Mr. Nathan McDowell. Hi there, sir. Hello. Let's get back to it where I left you with this question. Recently, both the President of the United States and the Vice President of the United States got challenged with the question, are we a racist country? They both said no. What are your thoughts, sir? Yeah, so kind of this might come back to our language discussion and how we use words, but if someone came up to me and said we are a racist country— and if someone came up to me and said, we're not a racist country, my first question for both of them would be, well, what do you mean by that? Um, I think that we are a country where power, um, and I would say predominantly for historical reasons rather than modern day discrimination, but I do think that plays a piece in it, where the power is disproportionately concentrated in the hands of white people. I think that we do have implicit bias, and then you know that's a whole social psychology thing we can get into and how that plays into stuff, but I do think we have um, on aggregate an implicit bias um, against races that are not our own. And so I think that the natural impact of that is going to be when we have institutions run predominantly by white people who do have implicit bias against people of other races, that um, the decisions they make and the choices that they make will end up um, having racist impacts against other people. I appreciate the way you say that for this reason. The way that we are right now, the, the makeup of the United States, is largely not a racist place. Like, uh, very, very few are left. We, when we find them... When, when a racist thing, a truly racist thing happens, we're largely appalled all across the spectrum. We are still living in the effect, the effects of a time when we really were. Where it was on the books. The, the laws said so. I mentioned some of that earlier. I, I think one of our, our biggest racial inequities is lack of home ownership. The, it's, the, it's the primary way to create wealth. And for years... You couldn't own a home, really, if for, for a black family. And that, that, uh, that cycle of poverty ends up causing all kinds of other issues inside families. Right? That, so I, I don't have to get into that whole, whole thing. But all those are solved. We're still dealing with the after effect. So I, I was appreciative that both of them said, no, we're not a racist country. We are, though, dealing with the past of, of some effects, which I, I think maybe gets us into the... Uh, I don't know. Does that, does that segue well into critical race theory? Yeah, I think I think it does. That's another thing you mentioned. You wanted to, or I think I mentioned I wanted to talk about it. Yeah, this is this is my thing, in part because I checked my archives. I brought up critical race theory. I started talking about it in early 
2016. This is how long I've been talking about it, as it was permeating through the higher education system, I could see. So I am negatively inclined towards critical race theory. I would even start say it, it starts to take on some of the elements of religion that it has. It has almost its own cosmology. It has its own original sin privilege. It has its own plan of salvation, becoming an ally. It, it starts to feel religious. Uh, and, if, and if you deny it, that you're treated like a heretic, you could be thrown out. So uh, you can challenge anything I just said there, but I, I just want to hear you, your general take on critical race theory. Yeah, so I, critical race theory is a subset of critical theory, right. which basically just you know decomposes everything in terms of power, which I think has been really extraordinarily useful in terms of uh, a lens, which is how I use it. I think there are situations in which, and I think this plays back into the left being good in some ways at handling groups and recognizing group-level discrimination. Um, you know, we do need to recognize systematic power imbalances between um, white people and black people and other people of color. We do need to recognize power imbalances that exist between women and men. And, you know, we can get into the detail of how much those exist if we want to. But I think critical theory had a lot to offer in really bringing those to the forefront. I think the problem is when power becomes your only variable that's entering into the equation. Kind of like what you said, anytime there's a gap, it's racist, sexist, homophobic. And I just think there's, there's more variables that we have to examine. And so, my main qualm with critical race theory would be when it becomes, instead of a lens that we employ strategically, it becomes a worldview and that's all you've got. Because I think it's a very limited and incorrect way to view the entire world. That's good, man. Um, I, I can, there, uh, let me say it this way. In the Southern Baptist Convention two years ago in Birmingham, Alabama, there was a, a resolution that called critical race theory an analytical tool that it's not, uh, we, can't, we can't keep it in line with the scriptures, but it's one way to understand part of the world. I, I could go either way on that, but there, there is in a subset of, the America, of American leftism, the critical race theory is the entire world. They, they swim, they, they live in what seems like a miserable world where everything is racialized. That... I mean, I've, I've had it a couple times where I make some kind of point in a discussion and it's just, well, you know, well, you're white or you're a white man. So it doesn't invalidate anything I just said. Points are points. They're not, uh, truth isn't racialized. Truth isn't aged. Truth isn't gendered. The truth is the truth. It doesn't matter who says it. And if we come into conversations looking at each other and deciding by visual, a visual indicator whether or not I have to listen to this person, we got a real problem. Uh, do, do you think it should be taught in schools, critical race theory? Yeah. Well, and, and with what you just oh, said, I, I wanted to say, um, for me, that's a big thing that I've argued with a lot of my friends about before um, in some of my more intensely leftist circles. Um, for a lot of people, I don't think it's, I think it's a small minority of vocal people, but for a lot of people that I've met, um, if you're white or a man or straight or whatever, that completely invalidates your opinion. And for me, that's too far. I do think it's important to recognize that, you know, if I'm a white person talking about black issues, my experience is limited and I do have bias. And so I think it's valuable when we say, yes, we all have identities. We bring these preconceived notions and biases to the floor. Now, if 
that starts meaning that on the basis of immutable characteristics that you have that you don't get the floor at all, that's where it goes too far for me. But I am comfortable with people, you know, pointing out and saying that, yes, your opinion is informed by, you know, X set of things, being white, straight, uh, able-bodied, whatever. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I think it does, I think this goes back to group versus individual. I feel like we need to dig in on that. I, I have a personal resentment, but I also think there's a logical fallacy in me being grouped. I, uh, my, what's the old, my hackles come up against that. I, I want to say back to somebody in conversation, don't group me. Don't, don't tell me about my characteristics and how that informs anything I think. I think what I think, and it can be evaluated on its own merits because I'm not part of a group. I am just an individual. So you take that where you want to go, but I think, that's, I think that's an underlying tension here is why is it valuable to look at the group and not individual people? Well, I think when we look at the science of demographics, you know, if I know a few things about you, I know your race, I know your gender, I know whether you live in a rural or urban area. Um, honestly, with just those three things, I bet I would be able to predict, given the, the, the stats training real quick, pretty accurately if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Sure. And so what does that tell us? I think that tells us that, you know, given that I think all um, genders and races and sexualities have the capacity to be equally rational, what are those differences produced by? And I think it's produced by self-interest and the fact that our identities do inform our opinions. So I'm, I'm big on rationality. I spend a lot of time trying to be rational, but I guess where I come in in, in favor of recognizing our identity sometimes is I'm skeptical of our ability to ever truly be rational. I think we should try to approximate it. I'm not um, a leftist who throws my hands in the air like a postmodernist and says it's pointless and we shouldn't try to engage in it at all. But I do think um, it's good to recognize that these are the cases and the areas and the experiences that might cause me to deviate in other ways. And I think we can do this too outside of a leftist context and it's still good. You know, so if I, um, trying to think of a good example, um, me raising up Baptist informs my opinion. You know, uh, I am not religious right now, but I'm a lot less hostile to it than I might be. And I think it's fair to say, you know, in certain contexts, it's like, well, religion may have hurt you. I'm biased to have a less hostile attitude towards it because my girlfriend's religious, my parents are, and, you know, the people I love most in the world are. And I think, I think that's good to do sometimes when we know we can't be perfectly rational. So group, I, I'm inclined to always be a peacemaker. I'm trying to find a place to. <laughs> I'm trying to find a place to agree, but let me say it this way: ideal world. I guess we don't have one of those. We don't have an ideal world. Ideal world is that I get to go into every conversation and be judged by what comes out of my mouth and how I behave myself. And I believe that's true of me with other people. I've, it's, this, man, this has got me into trouble where I assume the best of everyone. I think everyone's telling the truth all the time. I think everyone has the best intentions. That's my general uh, inclination towards humanity. And I guess because I do it, I want it so bad. I want it from others. I want to do it for others. To for, forget, and what you're saying is, that's a level of objectivity and rationality that is probably not achievable. Yeah, is that, I agree. Yeah, oh, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Okay, I guess not everyone's going to be like me then. That's a, that's a, a, a flaw of mine. Well, and I, I can come with you as far as that, that shouldn't be the first thing we see. And I noticed in my own mind when I spent time around certain groups of people, you know, the first thing that I bring into some interactions is, 
starting to decompose people in terms of their identities. And I think that's very unhealthy. To me, that's a, that's a subsidiary thing you kind of bring in. It's like, well, maybe these things are biasing us or influencing our experiences, but I don't think we want to live in a world where when I see you, the first thing I'm thinking is, here are your immutable characteristics, and now I've got who you are. I think that's the opposite of what we need to do as a country. So I'm with you that we have to be very careful about group identity, but I, I'm still going to maintain that it's a useful tool. You know, you use a term twice now, and I wonder if, if I understand it correctly. You use decompose twice. In, in philosophy, we have deconstructionism. Is, is there a relationship between that term you're using and the idea of deconstructing every, every system of thought, deconstructing every system of, uh, of, a, of a culture? Is there something there? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's treating people as being able to be understood and decomposing them, in my mind, into a list of, of characteristics. I mean, basically just using almost like demographics as your primary way of understanding a person. If you're this age, if you're this race, if you're this gender, and I decompose you into all those separate things, then, okay. I, then I understand you. I, I thought I understood it, but okay. I want to make sure, because again, words, and I, okay, yeah. I think we're on something similar there. This leads me to, I think, a question I would ask someone left of center. I am seeing in, inside of leftism language, usually coming out of critical race theory, that we have systems and structures that must be torn down. That's the language used. Some of the behavior over the summer was about tearing things down. Not reforming, not making better, but breaking the system. When you hear language like that, I think you get some of that from Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, you get some of that from Robin D'Angelo, who wrote the White Fragility book. Mm -hmm. I yeah. Think. Um, Ibram X. Kennedy is the guy who, for those who don't know, I'm not talking to you now, I'm talking to listeners, I know you know. Uh, he wrote the book that gives you the concept of being anti-racist, where you, can't, you either are one or the other. I'm not, I'm not a fan of that theory, but... so. Uh, when you hear the language of deconstruction, tear the whole thing down, what is your uh, response? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what we're tearing down, but I, I think I'm generally against that. And I question if when people say that, how much they're really for it or if they're just really using that as a signal to say that I'm radical and I com I'm completely pure in terms of my leftist ideology. Because most of the time when I break down what people think, um, they're not for completely destroying our economic system. They're not for completely destroying the police. So for me, and that's one of the reasons I fixate on languages, yeah, I, I don't like that. And, but when you start really trying to break that down with people, I question how often they really mean what they're saying. You're right. People don't mean what they say. It's, one of the, it's, a, it's a bugaboo for me that people don't mean what they say. Uh, we have five minutes left in the regular broadcast. We're probably going to do some bonus material if you have time. For sure. there's other things to talk about. But for the actual radio show, I want to finish here. Uh, we're about five or six months into the Biden administration. I'm sure uh, you have thoughts on that because that's who, who you voted for. I didn't vote for either of the major two candidates. Actually, for the first time in my life, I voted for no one. Didn't have a, a vote on the ballot. It's incredible that not even a third party could put somebody up that aligned with me Enough. It was, nobody cared. Apparently no one wants me, man. I'm a political orphan. <laughs> um, all right, so you got about five minutes, a little bit less than that. Your thoughts on the beginning of the Biden administration? Yeah, um, a couple of things I agreed with in terms of executive orders. Uh, I agreed with him lifting the travel ban. I agreed with him rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. Um, you know, having more people have access to our country and um, trying to take positive steps towards addressing climate change are two issues that are important to me, so I appreciated those things. Um, I think in terms of his COVID relief bill, I mean, it was very expansive. 
I, it's hard for me to say, you know, I don't know if I think it should be $1.7 trillion or if it should have been closer to $900 billion and what the differential impacts on the economy would be. That's his main legislative thing he's done so far, and, you know, I have to really dig into the weeds to get an opinion on that. I will say that April inflation they thought was going to be 0.2% and was 0.8%. Four times higher than expected, so maybe that's uh, an indication that we um, hit the brakes too hard with the COVID recovery, or not hit the brakes too hard, yeah. hit the gas too hard with the COVID exactly. recovery package. Yeah, with the accelerant. So generally, you would go, it's fine, We're, everything's fine. We're not, you're not super excited about it. You're not upset about anything. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's pretty much my position. <laughs> Is that fair? I I would love to get back to a point. I think I've said this to you before, where the goings on of Washington D.C doesn't dominate everyone's life doesn't dominate their mood doesn't dominate how they think the country's doing because of whatever's happening in dc my general uh, assessment of him thus far is we are spending too much money this is like I, and i'm the only person on the right who's been consistent on that i said it every year the trump administration was spending ridiculous amounts of money with their four trillion dollar budgets i was saying it then I get a little annoyed with my people now. Like, out of nowhere, right. you guys care <laughs> about the deficit again. Yep, I'm sure you're annoyed by that. Yeah, and it's hard to know what to even do with the numbers we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about, what are we, $28, $29 trillion in debt now. Yep. Biden's talking about um, doing a $3.7 trillion infrastructure bill. And I hear these numbers, and it's just, I, I don't see a solution to fix this problem. Do we just throw our hands in the air? Um you know, we are the greatest nation in the world, some would say, uh, and that's why we're able to have so much debt, because people just trust the American dollar. But um, every nation could have been the greatest nation in the world until they stopped being the greatest nation in the world. Yeah. So it's it's scary, for ask, sure. Ask Rome, ask the Greeks, ask the Ottomans about being the most powerful nation in the world for a while and uh, how that sometimes comes to an end. Yeah. We are going to talk, um, actually, we'd like to talk about the climate accords thing that you mentioned in, in our bonus time. Um, and some of the thoughts I have on immigration going forward uh, that you mentioned having access to the U.S. We're going to do that and more with the rest of our, our conversation. If you're listening live on Saturday morning on his radio talk, you can go over to Cortrex, or excuse me, to Cortrex.com, Cortrex.com, or wherever you find podcasts, you can find the rest of our discussion and this one on demand. Nathan, thanks for coming in today. It's great to be here. I'll be back with another new edition of the Cortrex Show next week. You can also go find the podcast to finish off this discussion. Cortrex Show listeners, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love. All right, we can actually do what we want now because WHRT, his radio talk, is not wondering about what we're going to say next. So um, still for my audience, we'll we'll keep it cl clean. We're always clean. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, so here we go. Welcome back, Nathan McDowell. Glad to be here. Let's do, let's do this one first. We talked about masks a little bit during the show, but uh, off air just now, it came back up. Here's, uh, this is one you'll probably disagree with. I was fine with masking. I also found that some folks, mostly on the left, imbued them like a talisman, imbued them with magic. That if you, man, if you wear a mask, everyone wear a mask, we'll shut this thing down. And my primary evidence regarding it is states that didn't do the masking thing had similar health outcomes to the states that did. So if it were a game changer, my death per million rate in Florida and California would be super different. But they're not, basically the same. That my death per million rate would be different in Texas and New York, but they're basically maybe right there in the same range. And so while I understand the attach, like they had to have some use, I thought they were given too much credit. 
your thoughts. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. One is that I know since then we've had some um, droplet analyses done on masks and spray patterns and all this stuff. And um, my uncle is actually a computational physicist and I think did some research actually with spray patterns. And that's what he got his PhD in. And we've seen that masks do reduce that. So we have some empirical lab evidence. I think out in the field, um, we've seen flu cases go way down. Now that could be attributed to social distancing or masks, but I think that's at least some evidence that those in conjunction were, were working, you know, because we see that, yeah, it's helped with COVID, but COVID we've never seen before. The flu, which we know about how many deaths happen every year, we've seen those decrease pretty significantly. And I, I'm willing to chalk that up to masks and social distancing. I also think this is just a massive problem. I think it comes up when it comes to crime rates, uh, when it comes to COVID rates, which is just that, Democrats live in more densely populated areas, and that means there's going to be higher crime rates, and now with COVID, that means there's going to be more cases of disease, and that creates this really complicated problem when we're trying to correlate, you know, how much do masks help? I think that probably that got blurred by some noise in the data that comes from the places that were employing more strict measures are also places that are much more densely populated. Okay. Okay. Uh I can see, I can see, I, I got to chew on that. I think it's, um, it's a point I haven't heard. I love hearing new things. It's like my favorite thing just yeah. to hear new information. <laughs> I've not heard that theory. Uh, we also talked a little bit off air vaccination. So I, ha I haven't been, have you, have you done yes, this? I've got my two doses. Oh, so is that, which one is the two? Um, Pfizer and Moderna are two and Johnson and Johnson's the one. It's yeah. the one. Okay. Um, who did you choose? I did Pfizer and it was okay. just the first one that, yeah, first was available. available. I'm not opposed to it Here, yeah i'm not trying to try to get you to argue argue me into getting a vaccine <laughs> but here's my thinking i'm healthy i've i know i've lost immunity to covid19 that's been almost a year now i don't fear getting it again my primary fear over the last year was infecting someone else but they now have the tool they've been given a vaccine you can go get vaccinated if you are of risk, you're responsible for you now. I'm not responsible for you anymore. Last year, I was sort of responsible for you because you had to live in the world and go out in the world and you had to interact with me in some way if I was, if I was in the same place. And so I'm going to take on the responsibility of protecting you in some way. So I, I don't, I, I'll probably, I don't know what I'll do on, on vaccination, but uh, your reaction to my thinking on, let me say it this way too. There seems to be on the left, like you better get vaccinated type of people. Why? You worry about you. I'm, I'm going to worry about me and leave me alone if I don't want to be vaccinated. Your thought? Yeah, so I'm with you. Uh, my main concern was being a link in the chain that gave it to someone else. I'm not that worried for myself. Um, I think this relates to a kind of liberal conservative divide in the way that we think about things. I don't think in the language of rights and obligations. I think in terms of harms and benefits. And so I wouldn't really say just in my personal moral framework that you have an obligation to get the vaccine to protect other people. But I do just think it does protect other people. It decreases the likelihood of death. That's a good thing. It's a moral action. And so I'm going to do it. It's a great illustration of that moral hierarchy thing yeah. um, from Jonathan Haidt that I don't because I don't have to. I'm not going to. If you're worried about it, you do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. Let's all just be adults is my my thought. Uh, so, OK, I got that. Um, let's do this one. You mentioned that you saw on one of my podcast titles something about there's a correlation between someone identifying as lib liberal and having more mental health issues. So here is just the, the study. Uh, the, mag the magazine, I think Jezebel, a liberal magazine, ended up doing a story on it. 
it, it was just a, I shouldn't say study, that's not true, it's a survey. Surveys are different than studies, and I'm sure <laughs> it's very important to you in your uh, field to know the difference. They, uh, they just asked a couple thousand, I think it was three or four thousand people, how do you identify conservative, liberal, very conservative, very liberal, moderate? And the, the question was, have you ever been told by a medical professional that you have a mental health disorder? And liberals responded appreciably higher with yes. In particular, the, the one that blew my mind is white women 18 to 30, it was almost 70% of them said they had been told they had depression or anxiety by a medical professional. At that point, you're not even disordered. You're normal. Apparently, it's normal between 18 and 30 to be a white woman with a uh, anxiety or depression disorder. I had some theories about why. I could tell you what those theories are if you want, or you could you just want to react to that information. Yeah, I mean, I could just be pedantic and throw in all the psychological research problems that always exist that make it difficult to interpret findings like that. I think one is... Um, this self-report mechanism, and you could you could weave a couple of narratives. I think one you could weave a narrative that I think is somewhat fair that liberals are just worried all the time. We're talking about how society <laughs> is terrible, how you know everything <laughs> needs to change. I mean, you're talking about tear the whole system down. Yeah. I mean, that's scary if you think the system is so bad that it's all going to be burnt to the ground. And so I think that that's very possible. I think it's also possible that liberals have a generally more accepting attitude towards mental health and people who are liberal are more likely to seek out mental uh, health resources and we know that just women are more likely to do that and women are more likely to be liberal so then we have this correlation problem again so um, I, I think both interpretations could be true and I think there's or a lot of things or all of them and I yeah. think there's a lot of things that make it hard to really disentangle what's going on there the one you mentioned that I didn't put on the show and I wish I would have thought of because it's a smart point <laughs> is liberalism makes you more inclined to seek out mental health care, right? And so the selection set does get corrupted in that way, in some, in some way, because of the differences in how conservatism and liberalism views mental health. But I, I mentioned as my, my primary theory is <laughs> left, we, we actually live in the best world we've, that has ever been created. We're at, the, we're at the pinnacle of humanity right now, and Left, leftism and liberalism tends to say, no, everything's terrible. Well, of course you're going to be depressed. You're gonna, of course you're going to have high anxiety. If your entire worldview says everything is bad all the time and you, nothing is, you can't ever say anything is good. I think there's also, I think there's something correlative. Is that the right word? Yeah, Co yeah. Correlative. Or maybe correlational. Maybe they're both right. I don't know. <laughs> Let's take either one. There's a correlation between being more conservative and being more religious and being more liberal and more irreligious. And there is... a a correlation and just coping mechanism even if we don't believe anything is genuine about the faith there is a coping mechanism to the faith of of ha finding hope in something where if you correlative if you're not if you don't have that re religious background you're probably going to have more hopelessness or anxiety so that was uh that was what that segment was about and i've i think we figured out why um but when you hear that survey did you immediately, because this is your field, you went, you did that survey wrong. You didn't, you didn't gather your data correctly. <laughs> well, I, no, I didn't do that. I did, because uh, to a certain extent, it made sense to me. I mean, I do think liberals worry more. I think everyone should read the book Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. He's, I don't know if he's it, brilliant. He's it, brilliant. Yeah, or just listen to his ideas if you don't want to read the whole book. Because, But basically what he does is he just has a ton of graphs that show we have almost a flat line till the Enlightenment and then exponential growth after that in terms of um, – 
the amount of people who have access to food, who have access to medicine, quality of life, length of life, democracy, human rights. It's yes. basically just flatline and then skyrocketing since the Enlightenment. And I would say for me, with the exception of, you know, climate change being a new risk, and we'll see exactly how all that pans out. And, you know, it only it only takes one really bad human catastrophe to, to set us off course and make things really um, bad for a lot of people. But um, with the exception of that, we're in a much better world by yeah. every metric than we ever have been. And I think more people should know that because I wasn't completely sold on that before the book. And then, you know, you just get smacked with the data. Yeah. You do, the, let, let the information change feelings. Let facts change feelings. Th to live in this, feel like you're in this hopeless world. Guys, people used to die at 40. Like, I've made this comment to lots of Americans. You and me right now, for 10 bucks, can go eat better than King George was eating in 1770. That, we are all kings and queens now. The things that we have conquered in the last 250 years, and I think that we're going to keep conquering. I have a ton of optimism for the future. I think that's, that's partly my own personal disposition. But I think, it's, I think conservatism is naturally more optimistic, that we're moving towards a better world. We're actually going to solve things. I, I was going to move on, but I felt like there was a facial expression there that you had a thought. Well, uh, yeah, there's another uh, one of the most consistent findings that we've done on the or found on the differences between conservatives and liberals is that conservatives have a much higher threat response, which is kind of interesting. And it, when I first heard that, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. But you start thinking about um, immigration. Conservatives are a lot more likely to view that as a threat. Uh, change. Conservatives are a lot more likely to view that as a threat to the order and the society that we have now. Um, and so you would expect, given that, that conservatives would have higher rates, potentially of mental health issues if, you know, they have a more active threat system. And um, that has to be taken into account. I'm not saying that that means that this new survey is wrong. I think there's a tension there. And it'll be very interesting to see if new research unravels that tension and how those things are related to one another. I got three more for us. Uh, so I don't like being in any kind of climate accord. I don't... Uh, I'm, I'm for cooperation amongst nations. The, my issue with most of the climate accords is no one ever meets their goals. The U.S. far exceeds Europe when it comes to our mitigation of CO2. None of it matters unless China and India get their junk under control. And so uh, anything that gives any international body, any document that the U.S. subjects itself to so it gives us any, any of our sovereignty. If we're going to do that, it better have a bunch of benefits. And the, I just don't think what Paris Climate Accord offers us as benefits at all adds up to the cost of giving away some of our sovereignty. Yeah, I think the main thing here is that it's completely non-binding. So for me, at worst, the Paris Climate Accords is toothless, and at best, it, we're at least making, we're posturing, and hopefully that leads to some downstream effects, and I'm, I'm skeptical that it will. I, I think it'll probably be pretty inconsequential in terms of policy and probably. the real-world things it affects, but I don't see it as a... I don't see it as a harm to just say, at least this is a goal that we're recognizing is good and that we're going to strive for collectively, even if you know China and India won't, and a lot won't happen in terms of tangible policy. Give you my other climate change take. I am not for climate, uh, climate change mitigation. I'm for consequence mitigation. So I'm ready just to say, yeah, uh, we're going to have rising sea levels. Okay, that's how it's going to, we have climate that's going to change our agricultural systems. Okay, let's not try to stop it. Let's try to figure out how to adapt to it. 
We've been adapting for hundreds and hundreds, probably, I mean, for much longer, humanity has been adapting to the world as it changes. Uh, so I, I actually find the idea that we could change it to be a fanciful fantasy, but we can start building seawalls in Charleston. We can start doing something to Miami to make it a livable place for longer. Uh, and so that's my thought. I want to stop trying to stop climate change, and I want to start creating the world that can live through it. Yeah, so I, I don't think humanity is going to be eradicated. We will survive and we will adapt. But I also don't think um, that means that there won't be a massive human toll when we do that. Uh, and I think that we're not going to be able to adapt super well in a lot of cases. I think um, one of the impacts of climate change is we are increasing the mean global temperature and the median global temperature, but we're also increasing the variance of temperatures that we can experience. So, for example, um, in Texas when you know they had the freeze and then people didn't have access to power and water and all this stuff um, that really messed up a lot of people and we were not prepared for that and I think that was a direct product of uh, climate change even if it was in kind of the opposite direction of what you would expect you know it was uh, you know because things were colder at the time I think that it's a good illustration of how we will adapt eventually but there's going to be some people who are hurt in the process um, my other response would be that We've got to address it at some point. Maybe it's not as urgent as some um, climate alarmists uh, on the very extreme end like to say, but the temperature is just going to keep going up. And at some point, there's got to be less carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, or humanity will be eradicated. Now, maybe that's way down the road when we're having that conversation, but there has to be some level, I think, of not just a consequentialist approach, but also addressing the underlying causes. I, I, can, I can get behind that. I'm, I'm a... Uh I may look out further in the future and know that I just think we have we have time and what humanity has done incredibly well is adapt to figure out the technology and we have some of the best minds in the world working on it we're not going to stop traveling we're not going to stop eating what we eat we're not going to stop living the way we live so if humanity is not going to stop that then let's change the fuel they use to travel right let's change the way we source the proteins they eat there's innovation happening everywhere there, and I'm encouraged by it. And I, th I think I think we'll be able to long term change our output, and in the short term change our infrastructure to uh, to protect ourselves. Uh, how about this one? We go back to critical race theory. Um, I want it nowhere near a public school classroom. Your thoughts? Yeah. So. Um I did a little bit of research when we were talking about critical race theory, and my main issue is uh, that's, and this comes back to the words again, whenever people are using a very provocative label like coup or critical race theory, and they're doing that more than talking about the substance of what's actually happening, um, I think we should all be very skeptical. And I would say this extends to critical race theory. Um, I looked at a stat the other day, this was in 2014, so it's a little bit old, and we've recently had a racial reckoning, but... Um, 48% of people thought that the Civil War was caused by uh, states' rights, and 38% of people thought that it was caused by um, slavery. Now, if you look at the uh, Articles of Secession for all the different states, you look at the Constitution of the Confederacy, they all talk about slavery being the cause. The vice president has this famous speech where he says, yeah, we're forming this confederacy because of um, the white race being superior and because we know that... Um, 
black people are basically meant for and are natural slaves. So I don't think you can say that the Civil War was not predominantly about slavery. What this tells me is that if anything in classrooms, we have a problem in the opposite direction where we whitewash history and say the first time that a white person landed on a continent was when it was discovered. And we should say it was discovered by Europeans or, you know, that's when they knew of its existence. Um, and all of that just to say, I think there's more of a problem of a whitewashing of history than critical race theory. Maybe there are some examples of critical race theory being taught in schools that are really bad that I don't know about. Um, but yeah, that's my take on what I know. Interesting. You know, I'm a history guy. That is my discipline. Yeah. A whitewashing of history. The, the thing you said there, you've got me all intrigued now, <laughs> by the way. Um, I've, I've kind of left the CRT thing behind to think about how we teach history. I'm okay with that uh, uh, continent was first discovered by Europeans. Changing that language. Okay. What do you think we whitewash? What, like, is it, like, Civil War, like, they're uh, allowing for one of the motivations being states' rights? Um, yes, I think that's one area, and I think that was much worse historically. I mean, if you ever study the history of the Daughters of the Confederacy and how it's one of the most successful uh, propaganda campaigns where the losers really got to write the history, at least in the South, of it being about states' rights and slave masters being nice. That was a big historical problem. I think we've addressed some of that, um, but clearly not completely, because more people in America still do think it's about states' rights. I also think it's not teaching about the history of black oppression in this country enough. I didn't learn about redlining in schools. I didn't learn um, about the fact that Lincoln was going to do 40 acres and a mule, and then President Johnson um, came in and said that, no, we're not going to do that after Lincoln was assassinated because of his uh, racially radical positions at the time. I think we teach history as though America um, had these ideals, and they were imperfect, and that since then uh, we've been getting closer and closer to living up to our great ideals as a nation. And I think we should be recognizing that at each and every point there was a struggle. After the Civil War, there was a massive backlash. After the Civil Rights Movement, there was a massive backlash to force busing. And it's not that one day America, you know, or over a course of a few points in history, America woke up and said, oh, we need to align our values. It was a history of white America oppressing black America and black America having to fight back. And we don't teach it that way. And that would be, I think, my, my main issue there oh man i gotta think through that um the the story of america something you just said there actually resonates with me and you were saying it as a as, as a criticism that you have the preamble of the constitution that includes a nonsensical two words more perfect that we are creating a more perfect union you can't do that things are perfect or they're not so it gives in it almost gives in to the concept that what we're doing is flawed. It will always be flawed. But we have an aspiration to apply these concepts of the Declaration, the concepts in the preamble, to more and more people over time. There's an aspiration. And that is the story of America. That has happened. The Constitution yeah. has been applied to more people over time. And I'm, I am sure that we have not achieved fully the vision of all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I want to teach it that way. I want to teach to kids. America has been and is the greatest project in human flourishing in the history of humanity. Here's Now, as we go, man, here's some ways it wasn't as we went. We want to talk about those. We want to talk about slavery. We want to talk about general ethnic prejudice. Trail of Tears. 
we want to uh, we could go through some through more, through more of, of the history. Like certainly want to tell the entire story, but always with the overarching concept. We have been the greatest force for good in the history of humanity. That's my thought. Yeah, and I think my the way that I would teach history in every classroom, if I had a choice, um, would be that we don't treat. Uh, I feel like what we do is we, we say we have these ideals and that we've slowly been getting closer and closer to them over time incrementally and that these – it's almost like we treat where we didn't uh, live up to our ideals as footnotes. And, you know, slavery is not a footnote. Women not having voting rights, that's not a footnote. And what we should be teaching it as is a constant – um, struggle, because that's what it was. It wasn't America waking up and realizing that we weren't living up to our values. It was, and I think this is where critical race theory has something to say, it was uh, predominantly white oppressors, white men who had more power, um, who inflicted that against groups who did not have power, and the oppressed groups had to fight back for it, and the change and the progress that we've seen was mainly driven by the oppressed groups of people. Um, you can, you know, see the civil rights movement, um, and you can see the uh, black leaders that came into power after the Civil War. And that doesn't mean that white people didn't help them along the way. But even if we think of the greatest white heroes in that process, Abraham Lincoln, I mean, he pretty much said he didn't even care about slavery. It was just about keeping the union together. Right. And so I think we need to view it more as a struggle um, and that our progress was driven not by uh, America as a whole, but by the oppressed groups of people. I know you're headed off to Chicago, but over the years, I don't know if you've heard yet, we have cellular technology and things like Zoom. We need to do an entire th discussion about this. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a complex topic. American history, because you have said some things I haven't thought of. Admittingly, you've you've introduced some concepts to me. I want to mull it over. Um, let's. Actually, I do. I want to get your response to cancel culture. Tell me. Uh, I, I I didn't prep you for that, but um, does it exist? How big of a problem <laughs> is it? What you got? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to pull my, my classic move for all of these. What's cancel culture? Um, one thing that's interesting about cancel culture is it's almost never effective except in the places where it probably should be. If you look at the people that have truly been canceled, like Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein, I mean, we're talking about people who have committed straight up you know, atrocious and, and criminal acts against other people. But when we look at more ambiguous cases, I'm thinking of Bill Burr, Dave Chappelle, and even uh, Bill Mayer and people like that, um, they're not canceled. And in fact, I think they thrive off of the fact that there is um, this leftist movement to say, oh, they're canceled, oh, don't watch them anymore. And then people are like, no, I want to go where someone's actually saying what they're saying. And it makes me wonder how much cancel culture is really a threat to anything because I don't think it has any impacts. I feel like it's almost just become really another way of saying we don't like this thing. We don't mean it shouldn't exist maybe even, and even if we do mean it shouldn't exist, it still will. It's just a way that the left has started to express, um, yeah, its disliking of different uh, aspects of society. I think there's, there's some others uh, to mention there. I mean, what happened to Kevin Hart and losing mm, the Oscars? Yeah. Um, we could get into some of the crazy stuff like Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head, these kinds of things. Right, yeah. But what I'm actually finding in cancel culture, because I think it's, it's real and it has been a problem, is there, it's finally actually the left that's saying back to its excesses, stop it, right? You're being ridiculous. And when it's 15% uh, it's of our people, it's 20% of Americans who participate in these things, it's a problem. It's not overwhelming, though. We're almost at an hour and a half, so we should probably stop. Yeah. <laughs> Nathan, I enjoy these, man. 
Me um, too. I'm happy for you heading on to Chicago, doing big things, uh, and whatever happens next. Uh, and we'll try to maybe do these. We could do phone stuff, Zoom stuff, if you're cool with it. Definitely. I'd love to. Very good. All right. So, Core Truck Show listeners, thank you for staying tuned for this long. I would imagine this is one that you listened to in in different settings. Like, it took mm-hmm. a little while. Um, but I'll be back with another shorter edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.